I'm sure give it another year or two and my favorite murder will be a graphic novel. Oh, I'm sure it's already in production. I'm going to Google this actually now. stop comics history podcast i'm steph your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist and i'm brooke your not so friendly self-declared comics expert we're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are and to celebrate the spooky month of halloween we're doing the first of our two creepy episodes And for her episode, Steph has chosen to delve into crime comics. That's right. Long before the true crime craze of the 21st century and podcasts in general, comic books had their own fascinations with the macabre and the morbid. And because it's crime and fictionalized depictions of crime... Warnings for this episode for discussions of sex, sexualized violence, and, uh, you know, general true crime and crime discussion topics. This is the merger of uh, my interest in particular, and I'm so glad I could finally drag Steph into some true crime rabbit holes. Like, I, yeah, uh, Brooks, Brooke does the two true crime scene. I don't, I like, do, I have been known to disappear into a Wikipedia rabbit hole that leads me to true crime stuff on occasion. I've read a few books and seen, seen like the BuzzFeed Unsolved stuff, but that's really the extent of my knowledge of the true crime genre. This is very much more Brooks Wheelhouse. To be fair, people have always been drawn to sensational, bloody tales that purport to be true or can be vaguely tied to the truth. Illustrated pamphlets reporting on various forms of debauchery would circulate in many societies, claiming insight into the depravities of the famous and the wealthy, with various degrees of, you know, actual truthfulness. But newspapers are the true predecessors here. Crime sold. Crime blotters sold. And illustrations of crime? People were really into that. According to the comic book history of comics, the line can be drawn directly from illustrated police blotters that were printed in the 1840s to the version that would reign through comics during the mid-20th century. Now, obviously crime is a pretty big staple of all comics, and all entertainment in general, really. Arguments would be made in later years that most superhero comics count as crime comics because of their portrayals of vigilante justice and violence. This isn't what we'll be going with, and that's still the case today, with plenty of people uh, listing comics such as Brian Michael Bendis's Jessica Jones as a newer example of a crime comic. For the sake of our exa- examination, though, we'll be focusing on non-superhero comics that look at crime from a variety of angles. The first comic book that focused on crimes and criminals was the famous Crime Does Not Pay. 
Crime Does Not Pay, the story goes, was inspired after co-creator Charles Biro was supposedly propositioned uh, with the opportunity to have sex with someone's girlfriend as long as the man could watch. So, is this going to be another explicit episode? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hard to talk about a lot of these elements without that nice e-label, so... Yeah. So, we're talking about a cuckolding kink. Yeah, so it would seem. Anywho, so as the story goes, um, Charles Biro would later learn that the man was a wealthy heir to a margarine fortune, and the woman was actually not his girlfriend, but someone he kept prisoner. Yikes! A comic history of comics has a very tasteful illustration of this scene. I'm sure. Anyways, Charles Biro was an industry veteran at, by this point, having made his entry into comics through Archie, before moving to Lev Gleason Publications, where he worked as an editor and cover artist for years. Lev Gleason Publications was one of the first comic book publishers who took up the adage... It's not just for kids, and focused on producing materials aimed for adults rather than children. The debate about who comics are for was already well and truly underway by 1939. Lev Gleason Publications was known for their romance comics, as well as a superhero comic named Daredevil, of no relation to the Marvel character of the same name. Gleason was a renowned leftist and believed firmly in pro a profit-sharing model of comics, which is kind of unusual to hear about, considering how infamously un-profit-sharing most comic books are. After this incident, the story goes that Biro approached his collaborator and roommate, Bob Wood, with the idea of using real-life crimes as inspiration. They got the title from a series of MGM anti-crime news shorts that played before movies in the 1930s, and soon, Crime Does Not Pay began hitting shelves everywhere. It didn't get great circulation for the time. For the time? Well, we need to remember here that this is the 1940s, and comics sold a lot more then than they do now. Oh, God. What was the number? Um, well, this small-selling publication was over 300,000 copies per issue. Oh, my... For context, the best-selling issue for August of 2021, the most up-to-date uh, month for which we have full sales info... Uh, was King Spawn number one. Uh, and for the curious, it moved 479,908 copies, according to Comicron. The next best, Batman 1989 number one, sold 134,000 units. While the top Marvel comic, X-Men Trial of Magneto, sold 117,334 units. Oof. Those numbers are depressing when you look at the kind of circulation that comics used to get. 
It's like there have been forces over the years that have steadily tanked the market and turned it into a niche hobby that only a few people can access. Wild. Someone should do a podcast about those things. Crime Does Not Pay was a weird little artifact at the time. It was gory and violent, full of sex and blood, domestic violence and titillation. The villains always got their comeuppance at the end of the issue, but it was often perfunctory, or an excuse for an equally gory execution scene. The real killer, however, was the letters at the end, purporting to be from real-life people who swore up and down that they had been turned off from a life of crime after reading the comic. It was their own kind of way of trying to deflect criticism. Weirdly enough, however, they didn't like to advertise the fact that those were paid testimonials. Weird. But after World War II, things changed. Soldiers returning from World War II often found the cartoonish violence and strict morals of superhero comics to be, to be unsatisfying after everything they had gone through overseas. This post-war interest in more realistic comics fueled a crime comics boom, starting in 1948. According to the editorial at Gleason, Crime Does Not Pay was selling 6 million copies an issue. Although, actually, it seems that the number came from people lending comics to their friends. The actual number was probably closer to 1 million units an issue, which is still twice as popular as the most popular comic on the market today. For the next decade, noir reigned in Hollywood and crime comics reigned over the comics world. Over 150 new crime titles would hit the stands between 1947 and 1954, including True Crime Comics, Headline Comics, Justice Traps the Guilty, Real Clue Comics, Crime Suspense Stories, Crimes by Woman, and Shock Suspense Stories. These comics competed for readers. They worked to outdo each other on blood, gore, guts, boobs, more blood. It got to the point that people started to view violent comics, well, much like the way that people talked about violent video games a few years ago. People moved to ban them, restrict them, and censor them quickly. Canada banned crime comics entirely in 1949, a law which was only repealed in 2018. Really. <clears throat> a magazine, periodical, or book that exclusively or substantially comprises matter depicting pictorially A. The commission of crimes, real or fictitious, or B. Even events connected with the commission of crimes, real or fictitious, whether occurring before or after the commission of the crime. Wow. <laughs> Canada's legal code is really providing us a nice definition of crime comics. The city of Chicago specifically banned Crime Does Not Pay in 1947, and New York State would pass a law banning the word crime in comic titles sold to minors. Comics struggled to find ways to keep their lucrative crime comics despite the wave of impending regulation with waves of disclaimers, increased presence of morals, and in-house rules. But it was to no avail. 1954 brought us, what else? Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wertham. 
go listen to our episode on that subject if you want to know more about that part. But in short, Frederick Wertham, renowned psychologist, railed against crime comics, although his definition of crime comics was a bit broader than Canada's, and became the voice for a movement to censor and regulate comic books. In June 1954, the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency began to examine the issue of crime comics and its connection to actual crime. And we touched on this briefly in the Seduction of Innocent episode, like Steph said. They extensively interviewed William Gaines, the publisher of Entertainment Comics, which was known for both crime and horror comics. Gaines' testimony was... Pretty damn bad. Sources claim that he was hopped up on diet pills, and generally he came across as callous, uncaring, and smug. Which is not a good look when you're in front of Congress arguing for the existence of your industry. To have a taste of what kind of nonsense he was doing, when asked if the cover of Crime Suspense Stories, number 22, which contained a severed head, was in good taste, he answered, Yes, sir, I do, for the cover of a horror comic. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher, so that the neck could be seen dripping blood from it, and moving the body a little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. Like all comics, crime comics got swept up in the Comics Code Authority, which had strict rules about violence, sex, and even realistic depictions of crime. Additionally, the CCA banned the words crime, horror, and terror from comic book titles altogether, functionally kneecapping the work of several publishers, including Entertainment Comics. Crime Does Not Pay, in particular, would stop publishing in 1955, effectively ending the age of crime comics. Although people tried hard to keep the appeal up, it ended up being too difficult. Smaller comic companies folded and once popular titles ended, unable to make sales under the rigid rules that prevented them from making the kind of art that had sold. A strange note to end on, however, is that Bob Wood, co-creator and editor of Crime Does Not Pay, would eventually go to prison for first-degree manslaughter. Supposedly, he told a taxi driver that I killed a woman who was giving me a bad time in room 91 of the Irving Hotel. Why don't you call a newspaper and make yourself a couple of dollars? Yikes! Crime comics became kind of solely the subject of international comics for a long time. But they started to make a return to American comics once the Comics Code Authority faded. Famous examples include Frank Miller's Sin City, Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, Sleeper by the same team, Incognito, also by the same team, uh, 100 Bullets by Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Riso, Scalped by Jason Aaron and R.M. Guerra, and finally Richard Parker, Richard Stark's Parker by Darwin Cook. Yeah, crime comics are kind of not viewed as mainstream still today. Most of these projects are image or dark horse or other 
um, more in more indie lines rather than being mainly from DC or Marvel. And a lot of them are also uh, some of them are graphic novels rather than continuing uh, continuing series. Like so, this is still kind of something that really isn't in the mainstream anymore. Like this is another one of many genres of comic books that still haven't really recovered particularly this kind of anthology based crime fiction um you do periodically see dc and marvel trying to pay homage to the history of comics in various ways and they'll put out like a special one-shot issue of um basically an anthology that's meant to sort of mirror uh, these, but usually filled with superheroes and colorful outfits and uh, a little bit more cartoonish violence than what we would have once seen in the original crime comics. Um, I know uh, this past Valentine's Day, DC did a uh, homage to crime comics with one of their romance collections, which was an uh, interesting a- mashup. Love is a Battlefield for uh, February 2021, I believe, was that issue. I do believe you're correct. Yeah, I feel like uh, DC and Marvel have had more luck incorporating other dead genres than crime comics. You can, uh, just because of the specifically anthology-based nature of crime comics, like, you can have romance story. Romance comics kind of live on primarily through Archie, frankly, but then you also, but you also get things like gra- graphic novels or more, or or more romance based runs thing that happen in particular. You Lots of web comics through th- lot of web comics, and then you can get you get horror through like, horror lives in indie, but also even in DC and Marvel, you have things like Swamp Thing and their darker lines. And DC has never given up on Western comics. Despite how Jonah Hex should die in a fire. And if you're wondering, Steph, why do you have a grudge against a cowboy from DC Comics? I feel the need to remind you something that DC does not like to advertise, but this is still part of his canon backstory. He is a Confederate soldier. Yep. Still wears the hat. Like, they, they have not gotten rid of that. Still wears the uniform. Yeah, I don't think people notice that. Like... And they, like, they just, they keep trying to keep him in the history and they just don't talk about it, but it's still part of his story. And this is why I hate Jonah Hex and why one day we'll probably have to do an episode about it. Oh, without a doubt. But yeah, so it's like, of the the dead comic genres, crime comics are really the genre that have suffered the like have not managed to really make their big comeback in a way they are like at least a comeback in as in their the original form simply because of how much of these were based on anthologies and anthology comics aren't like are out of favor generally but yeah other comics found their new niche crime comics never really did it's also worth pointing out that the understanding of morality and ethics and true crime community has been in discussion since true crime has kind of been on this upswing in the last few years. 
um, as sort of a peripheral uh, member of the true crime uh, community, uh, I I've listened to lots of debates uh, about that topic and what's the correct way uh, to honor certain memories. What's the best way to consume content. Um, and in general, uh, there's sort of an agreement that, um, true crime, uh, needs mediums that focus on, uh, laying out facts and correcting misconceptions that may have happened around these really big cases. So the overlap with a entertainment-based, um, medium like comics, which, if they were to touch true crime things uh, in the way that a lot of media is sort of moving towards in the last few years, you would have to have a writer write out these scenarios uh, that happen to real-life people and are still affecting real-life people on top of having an artist then choose to depict that. And... um People would be less okay with these things today, I think, than they would be in the past. Like we said, um, these comics often did depict things that were ta being talked about in real life uh, because they hearkened back to uh, the tradition from the 1800s of illustrating uh, police plots uh, in newspapers. It's also kind of important to note where crime comics took their sources from. They were drawing things from newspapers and police sources particularly, meaning that the, the things they were focusing on were things from a very specific biased point of view. Crime comics and the police blotters that were mentioned earlier uh, both were kind of have been infamous in the past for overemphasizing the crimes of certain populations. And the effect that they had on white womanhood in particular, but white people and white property generally. Like, so there is a definite, like, history to crime comics in how they sensationalize and feed into certain narratives of attack on, attacks on white communities. And it feeds into kind of, like, a general moral panic about safety and how dangerous cities are. And other kind of loaded and coded phrases that, you know, you have to think about. It's also worth noting that if you go down this alley and you're taking real life cases as inspiration and knowingly converting them into a more fictional setting, uh, there's an element of that that is very difficult for a lot of people to swallow. Um... An example, a very prominent example that comes to my mind is somebody who is a giant comic book fan, but also a giant true crime fan, is um, Alan Moore's uh, From Hell, which is Alan Moore's fictional depiction of uh, the Jack Ripper case. Uh, for my personal taste and for my personal ethics, it was a very difficult and challenging read for me to go through, not because it was bloody and gory and because it dealt with real life murder. I am very familiar with this case. I 
watch and listen to and read a lot of stuff about uh, these things. Um, but it felt um, very tasteless to turn it into this fantastical story that involved time travel and the occult and slandering a lot of people. And yes, this is a case from over a hundred years ago at this point, but it still feels dirty in a sense, at least uh, from my perspective, because you are dealing with what ultimately ended up being the worst times of real people's lives in one way or another. So, um, I like uh, crime comics in concept. Um, and there's a lot of crime genre fiction I like a lot. Um, the exactness of how you would bring back crime comics without of, without uh, stepping into a lot of these landmines, I, I'm not totally sold on. I don't know yet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's an issue that plagues all forms of, like, police procedurals. I mean, besides all the other issues that police procedurals have going on right now. Right. I mean, always, but right now there's a big discussion about it happening. Uh, You know, like, I was a while ago watching, uh, this is one of those things where I have become, as I've gotten older, I've become more, and I have learned more, I become aware of some more famous real life crimes and serial killer things that I just didn't know about as a kid and I'd be watching Criminal Minds or NCIS or Law and Order and I'd be like that's a you're just fictionalizing this real thing that happened and I'm not really comfortable with that like or which is just kind of one of those things like how do you how do you balance like using real like real crimes and fictionalizing them while with also chasing headlines and can it be done tastefully and you know that's the whole discussion that could be had uh Mm -hmm. not one that i feel particularly qualified to talk about because there's all the other kind of i don't know if i'd say it you arguably more important conversations about police procedurals to be that need to be had right now generally but it's certainly something to think about. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a brain teaser. Yeah, uh, but it had a lot of fun, like looking at some of the old co- comic covers for this one. Some of these things were just truly bizarre. Like, uh, but it's also kind of funny because actually a lot of them, the ones I found, the examples I found were from some actually pretty decent artists who like actually are on the record talking about how they tried not to overuse the red for blood because they like, you know, you get, you get like used to it. It's just like, you have to be careful Mm -hmm. about it. And it was just like, it's really funny reading really artistic opinions about how to do a gory severed head. (laughs) Nice. Uh, I do have to ask you this question um, in the spirit of this podcast. So, um, we've talked, we've discussed before, uh, the gorilla craze that went through, uh, comic covers. Um, we discussed that. So mm-hmm. it's only appropriate, I feel, for me to ask, were there any gorilla or monkey related crime comic covers? If there were, I did not see them. 
Like that seems that seems like an oversight considering uh murder in the room morgue would have started like the modern crime genre, right? I you know that I I've got uh <laughs> I got nothing to be fair. I I could have missed it, you know. There were a lot of these titles, but uh most of the ones I most of the time but also, uh, frankly, another thing that these comics, we kind of briefly touched on it. Uh, these comics really liked uh, uh, scantily clad women in dangerous situations. And gorillas don't really jive with that particular uh, genre unless you're King Kong. And you can only do that. I was so about to say. Times. Listen, you, you're, the, you're, you're the gorilla expert. Ugh. That is not what I need my legacy to be. Uh, well, don't worry. Like, I'll, I'm sure that of the 20 people who listen to this episode, only half will remember that you are the, mon- the monkey queen. Well, uh, with that, uh, we're going to move on to our recommendations for this week. Uh, so for this week, I kind of wanted to go to something that really kind of uh, is a DC comic, but it really did delve back into the noir and the crime elements. And it is none other than Denny O'Neill's The Question from 1987. Uh, the Question is dark and gritty. It is, it's ridiculous. It's incredibly depressing like do not read this if you if you like are doing any like consuming alcohol or generally in any sort of bad mood it's very dark uh, but it's also just really amazingly well written and it is of its time it has some quirks uh it was written by a man who was progressive for 1987. Uh, and, you know, he's trying to make commentaries about racial politics and city politics. And sometimes it ages well and sometimes it does not. Uh, but generally, it is an all-time favorite series of mine. It is illustrated by a variety of people uh, because it lasted quite a while. Uh, but Denny O'Neill was consistent and carried along the whole way. And it just really is... I'd argue one of the peaks of Denny O'Neill's career and just a great series overall. So I'm going to go in a slightly different uh, direction with my recommendation. I'm going to go with a pure crime comic that was published in 1998 by a, uh, by a indie production, Oni Press, which is still around. Uh, and it's actually by Denny O'Neill's, uh, most, uh, reverent, uh, uh, acolyte, uh, Greg Rucka. So, uh, Greg Rucka, uh, worked together with Steve Lieber and, uh, one of his very first comic book projects, what got him on the map was a crime series, uh, called Whiteout. Whiteout is a four-issue series um, that was put out by Oni Press, and it basically put both Rucka and Lieber on the map and le- led to them getting careers 
uh, in the comic book industry. It's about U.S. Marshal uh, Carrie Stetko uh, and her unofficial banishment to uh, the Antarctic, uh, where she is basically acting as a protector and security for a lot of the scientists that are working on Antarctic uh, uh research projects and uh while there and dealing with people casually getting uh stir crazy over time uh she ends up having to put herself and others into various uh cases of danger and um it definitely earns its genre it's definitely a crime comic um, but it's very interesting, and it has a lot of Rucka-isms that, uh, if you've been familiar with his work, uh, you will have, uh, probably, uh, picked up on at this point. Uh, strong female lead character, uh, dealing a lot with sexism, but also, uh, just, uh, doing a good job of making characters three-dimensional even in a limited amount of space so uh it, it's a really good series i'm afraid of giving too much away because even what the crimes are that are being solved uh is kind of a spoiler so i am walking around it it's four issues long it's a great series um it did have a <laughs> Uh, it had a film adaptation in 2009 that you should not watch. <laughs> um, it is maybe one of the worst adaptations I've ever seen. Are we counting The Last Airbender? Well, that would be at the top. Um... <laughs> Whiteout's pretty bad. Um, I am. I'm horrified. Like you know, I think I think I understand why Rucka kept such tight creative control over the old guard. Yeah. Um. Kate Blekins. Uh, Kate uh, Beckinsale is really pretty in it, and that's I mean... about it. And there you have it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you want to support our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash yellowboxespodcast. Or you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Those really help us reach more people. You can also subscribe or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, want to propose how to turn your favorite true crime podcast into a comic book or just really like comics you can tweet us at at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com special thanks to kevin mcaloyd for the music that serves as our intro and outro feeling good thanks for listening
these comics competed for readers. They worked to outdo each other on blow, <laughs> blue, uh, blow, <laughs> blow. They 